I'm sometimes a bit surprised by the things that I overhear people say here in the neighborhood. I'll be sitting at a bar or a restaurant, a gas station, and I'll overhear somebody say something that seems pretty funny when you hear it out of context. So I started writing them down, and I started posting them on Twitter, at Otis Gibbs. And uh, you can go there and read some of them if you'd like. It's, it's funny stuff when you read it. But uh, one of them was... I was at a bar a couple nights ago, and I saw this old guy trying to hit on these girls, these young girls, and they really weren't that interested in him, and I guess he felt like he needed to dig deep and come up with a really good line to somehow win them over. So he leaned across the table, and I guess the best line he could come up with was, I lost all of my teeth in a chainsaw accident. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville, Tennessee, on a beautiful, beautiful, cool day. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Tim O'Brien. Tim is a singer, a songwriter, and a multi-instrumentalist. And you can find out everything you need to know about Tim at timobrien.net. I'm really excited about having Tim on the show. I've said it before, but when I first got the idea to do this show, Amy and I sat down and we made a list of some of the people who I'd like to have on. And Tim was on that list, so... I'm pretty excited about having him. And uh, I have to say that after we got done talking, he said uh, something about, would you like to see John Hartford's hat? And I said, of course I would. But he brings out this hat, and it was once owned by John Hartford. And uh, he actually let me put it on and take a picture. And it was way too small. And I looked like a complete dipshit wearing it. But I was wearing John Hartford's hat, so... I put it in the wind column. I think that's a good day. But Tim was really generous with his time. We sat there in his kitchen and talked for a long, long time. And he had a lot of great stories. And once I got home, I decided I was going to turn this into a two-parter. So here's part one of Tim O'Brien. Well, we we were playing in... Uh... We were going to do sound and open the show for Bill Monroe in Colorado Springs. So we got down there and we set up the PA at the Colorado College there. And then we were doing the sound check. And um, here comes Kenny Baker and Bill Monroe. And they sat down in the last row of the, of the auditorium there and watched us. You know, it's kind of nerve-wracking. I hadn't met Bill. I'd seen him play a couple of times. So he... He was sitting back there in the last, you know, and, and I would play the mandolin mostly and sing. So we're out there probably singing a Bill Monroe tune when he walks in, you know. And then um, at the end of the sound check, I'd play the fiddle into the vocal mic to make sure that wasn't going to feed back because we used a large diaphragm mic, condenser mic on there. Anyway, so 
that was the last part of the sound check. So here's Kenny and Bill watching me play the fiddle. So it's like, you know, Kenny Baker's, you know, that's, I really looked up to him. Both of those, I mean, geez, they're heroes. So um, we get back to the dressing room and after our check and there's Bill and I said, Mr. Monroe, it's great, really an honor to meet you and really uh, looking forward to hearing you play. He says, I like your fiddling. And then he looked at me kind of for a second and then he just walked away. And I, I think it was, you know, in retrospect, I know that he had no time for other other mandolin players. He he, Sam Bush. He, if Sam Bush was playing a mandolin around him, he just wouldn't even talk to him. But if he had his fiddle, he'd say, "Come over here and play," because he didn't want anybody, you know, playing something different than he would play, or he doesn't need another. Why would you need another <laughs> one? But uh, so I don't know if that what that meant. I sort of I think he was kind of testing me to see if I got I got what he was saying. And I just went, well, what about the mandolin and the singing? I guess I didn't like that. But it wasn't like that at all. It was just like he just, he, he was trying to test. I think he was joking with me. But you don't know how to joke with God, you know. It's just kind of hard. And that's kind of the way it was with him. He, he, was, uh, he was suspicious and he, didn't, he wouldn't suffer a fool. And he kind of just maybe wrote me off. Kenny Baker would be the guy who would, who would remember who could play and uh, sing, you know, and if, if Bill would never remember anybody's name, and Kenny would be his sort of his his address book. You say, well, uh, Bill, we, you, you need a banjo player. What about that fella from such and such? Well, I don't remember him. Well, you liked him the da- that day, so we'll call him up. You know, that's how people get the job. I'm from Wheeling, West Virginia, which is on the northern panhandle of the state, and it's uh, it had a country music presence for sure with the WWVA Jamboree, um, which went from 1930s into, uh, I think, into the well into the 80s. I think I read somewhere that you uh, got to see a lot of greats in the theater when you were a kid. Yeah, they would play, you know, you could, could see uh, Charlie Pride or, um, you know, Jerry, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, I saw there a couple times on the Jamboree at least, uh, you know, Charlie Pride, Buck Owens, uh, Merle Haggard. You know, Jerry Reed it was great. Do you have any memories of, the, of any of those shows? Yeah, I remember hearing uh, Merle Haggard, and and he was just he had learned to play the fiddle enough to do that um, Bob Wills record, and uh, he was doing a lot of that stuff. And I thought when he played Maiden Spare, I thought, man, I don't maybe I should try to learn the fiddle. <laughs> I thought I really thought it was pretty cool. Is that when you picked it up? Yeah, I had one, and um, I I wasn't making much progress, but I got into it after that. I was uh, under the spell of the British invasion stuff, the Beatles, certainly. My sister was big into it. She was a, She's about a year and a half older than me, Molly. Then also at the same time, it's sort of my friends were starting to play kind of Sears, you know, robot guitars and stuff, and I, I uh, played theirs, and then I got my own. And, and I, you know, it's just one of the people that kept doing it. There was the folk music thing with uh, Peter Paul Mary kind of stuff, and that was kind of pop music in a way then, acoustic guitars. And then there was the Beatles, and was, they kind of eclipsed all that. But I kept at it, and um, it was just my, my, my grade school friends were playing, and I just, I, just I, I could do it, so I kept doing it. And um, it just kind of kept building. My sister and I started singing together soon after. We, she was, she's a fine singer, and we'd do little school shows. Maybe we'd play at somebody's wedding, you know, sing from the choir loft or uh, maybe we'd be right down in the church or might play 
for some sort of party or something. So, but it was just kind of amateur shows and that kind of thing. And But it was like uh, there was a little carrot at the end of the stick. We were in some competitions and won, and we just kept doing it. Did you feel isolated at all in uh, Wheeling, West Virginia? Well, Wheeling seemed like, uh, yeah, I mean, it was like there wasn't that much going on there. Like uh, Pittsburgh was the Holy Grail. You could go up there. That's where, that's where my sister and I actually went to see the Beatles in Pittsburgh, uh, whatever year that was, 64 or 5, when they their first tour. Yeah, you could go up there, or you, if you got on the top of a hill, you could get to the FM station. I can't remember what it was. It was like the underground record station you know radio station and they'd play the psychedelic stuff and blues and you know country rock and all that stuff else was coming in so that was great um and then there was you know the pops music station kdka and then there was a uh, wwva which was the country station and public radio was just kind of starting it hadn't really started yet so it was kind of those things and you were kind of in a you kind of you were isolated definitely there it was like here I am in West Virginia where there should be a lot of bluegrass music around, but I went to the record store and I couldn't find anything. There was one Flat & Scruggs record with Doc Watson that's strictly instrumental record, so that was my first Doc record. I'd seen him on TV and I thought, man, I want to study up on this guy. And there was one record, and you just had to find your way. You know, it was before I knew about county records you could send away. I mean, there was before the Internet or any of that stuff. It was like you just had to figure it out yourself. I don't think people appreciate how accessible everything is now. I remember... Yeah. Friends, a friend might have a bootleg of John Lee Hooker, and I had to go to his house to, you know, to watch this, you know, yeah. video or whatever, because I might never ever see it again. Right. But now it's all available. Right. And my friends, you know, get a John Lee Hooker record. Uh, we, well, we got Hooker and Heat. You know, that was that we've heard about that. So then, but you know, because I was, I had the appetite. I made it my business to find out. So you know, you'd get Hooker and Heat. So I said, well, what's John Lee Hooker like by himself? Or what's Doc Watson? Who's he play with besides, you know, uh, Flat and Scruggs? And you find out about Clarence Ashley and that kind of thing. But, you know, like now it's, uh, you know, you would do a search on the web and then you just kind of enter into this, uh, your own private uh, wormhole. <laughs> <laughs> it took me a year to find, years to find my wormhole. <laughs> Can you tell me what that Beatles show was like? Yeah, the Beatles show... The Beatles show at uh, Civic Arena in Pittsburgh. Uh, we were way up on the side, you know, to the sort of stage right, way up on the bleachers up there. Girls screaming. And uh, there was a bunch of opening acts, and I'm sure they were some of them were famous. Um, I've looked at that, like at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, or the thing, actually the Experience Music Museum out in... Uh, Seattle, they had a thing on that tour, and it had the date. I think it was a September 17 or something like that, you know. And it uh, had all the opening acts, but I didn't, you know, I didn't know anything about any of them. They sang the hits of the day, and I remember saying, well, that's cool that all those people are here. And my sister said, yeah, but they didn't make the hit, you know. She knew enough. She said, well, that's not their song, but they're singing the hit. I said, oh, that's interesting. So it's interesting that that would happen. That was before it was like, you know, your own music, it's more like they're putting on a show and trying to get people win over people over. Of course, the Beatles did their stuff, um, but they came out and played for thirty minutes or something, you know, probably. I think probably is about all they played. Maybe, maybe longer. But it was just like screaming. You couldn't hear them. You couldn't. You could hear the music before the Beatles came out, and then when they they came out, of course, PA wasn't much probably, and uh, it was just like screaming girls. And my mom was there, and my sister, and two of her friends, I think. 
um, we were girlfriends, so they were all screaming. And of course, if if, if one of the Beatles would look out one direct, if you just look up at the audience, there'd be this wave of just hysteria right in that corner. <laughs> and uh, and they kind of looked up to the right a couple of times, and they were just you know nearly fainting with the excitement. <laughs> but you could sort of cover your ears like you can with uh, you know it allowed allowed situation and sort of pick out the sounds more easily and sort of hear them play. But, uh, you know, it's like, uh, <laughs> I remember we had to pay mom back with extra chores for those tickets. They were probably like 10, 12 bucks or something each. <laughs> that was quite a lot. For <laughs> probably a lot, of, a lot for 1965. Yeah, when I was, um, I was in Boy Scouts and I love the West. And we went, I went to, um, this Boy Scout thing uh, to do like something like a 50 mile hike out in um, New Mexico at Philmont it's called and uh, I was into that and then I was into skiing I, I taught actually taught skiing believe it or not in Wheeling West Virginia there's a little ski area across the street from my parents place it was you know so I would love the I, I was sort of held up the west as an ideal it was like a place to go camping you know mountains Skiing, of course, at the at the time that I was ready to do something on my own, I was also trying to be a musician. So first, I went to Jackson Hall. I had some friends that were going to spend the winter there. I had worked at camp summer camps out there a couple of summers, and so some of those people that were working in the summer were going to spend the winter. So I went after a year of college. The, the next fall, I went out there and dug in. I was trying to find people to play with and be a ski bum and ski a lot as much as I could. And I couldn't hardly afford to ski. So I learned to fiddle that sort of really got to where I could play fiddle with other people that winter. And I visited Colorado and I had some friends. Uh, I'd met a guy that was from there and he said, come visit sometimes a lot of music. So I went down there and I, I got invitations to play in a whole bunch of bands. So I thought, well, maybe that's a possibility. I rambled around another several months and then ended up there in the fall of 74. I worked in a music store. That was the thing. There was a job in a music store. I could teach lessons, and there was a band that they had through the music store, a bluegrass band. So I was like, okay, I can make a living. I, you know, I won't starve. I can land there. And I was pretty much there off and on for 22 years. I was in Colorado. You know, in, in the mid-70s, there was the country rock thing was big. Um, Firefall was just starting. Steve Stills and uh, what's it, Richie Fure, they kind of had places out in the mountains near the boulder. And you'd sort of hear about them playing. And that was the kind of the vibe of the music, kind of acoustic guitar, mountain music, you know, hand drumming and hippie stuff. <laughs> Flute. <laughs> you know there was a band called Mountain Music that was the Spoons uh, actually Chris Daniels is still kicking around out there that was his band Magic Music there was another one called Navarro that was kind of a country rock band that was happening but you know I, I landed in there and I was playing and there was actually there was also a, a, a the buzz around Boulder was this group Dusty Drapes and the Dusters and they were sort of rockers who had decided for a lark to have a country band. And they came up with that name, and then the guy who was the front man just ended up being Dusty. They didn't even know who Dusty was going to be, but they started wearing cowboy hats, and then one day they all cut off their hair short, and they started wearing real, real uh, you know, Miller Stockman Western wear. And um, 
they all had different names they, and they had these this personality and that was it was like a big it ended up being a big band it was started out as like a five or six piece but they ended up being like 10 they had a horn section and old things like a bob wills kind of thing and very exciting and very entertaining and there was a big scene for for western swing dancing in the middle of that i showed up and they wanted me to play some fiddle with them but i i did i missed the gig and a little bit they hired a guy before i got back there but meanwhile, I'm studying on them, and there was uh, some other folks around, and I started with this band, Ophelia Swing Band, uh, that had started, and it was like a string, you know, it was like acoustic string band. It was like, it kind of looked like Dan Hicks and the Hot Legs or something. There was a couple girls, and there was funny music, but it wasn't original music. It was, uh, we did old stuff, and, um, you know, tried to play like Django and Stefan Grappelli kind of stuff with the fiddles and the mandolins, but also... Tried to do big band arrangements. So we did that for about three years. And uh, Telluride Festival started. So it was kind of a magnet for all those hippies to get together. And uh, it's always, that scene was, you know, it's college town. So there's stuff going on and it keeps regenerating. I I sort of think of it as kind of deader now, but I'm sure it's just still bubbling like it always was. You know, it just depends on what age group you are and what your perspective is. But at the time, it seemed like there was tons of things going on. I'd go to this one club every, pretty much every night of the week if I wasn't working. And then a bunch of us would meet f- for breakfast at noon, you know, at the Aristocrat Cafe. And uh, it was just like that, just hang out. You know, if you got a little gig for 25 bucks, you were in the money, you know. And it was, uh, it was a good place to, to uh, start out, really. I mean, it was, it was, it was nurturing. It was, it was competitive a little bit. But I, I was a, I was, I, I was a reluctant. I didn't know that I would last if I went to a place like L.A. or New York. You know, Nashville didn't really interest me, and I wasn't really interested in country music that way. There was a Denver Folklore Center too. That was a great resource. Um, people coming through town. I mean, that had been going since the mid '60s, so it was a known place, and there was a, uh, a nice concert hall there. And a great record store. They had a great record store. I mean, that's when I when I finally. It's like the the music that I learned. It was like you say. You feel isolated in a small town. Wheeling's you know a city, but it was it was just kind of off the track. And uh, my brother went away to college. Came back with Miles Davis and Les McCann and Odetta Records and Bill Cosby and it was and Ray Charles. And I was going, oh, this is cool. And then um, when I went to Boulder. That was, and well, I went to college for a year up in Maine and I found out about Woody Guthrie. I found out about, you know, um, starting to, have to find out more about Hank Williams and all that kind of stuff and getting to the, root, the roots of things. But Colorado is like, oh yeah, that's well, time to study and really learn. Yeah, Hot Rides was, we started in 78. Um, 70, in 77, early 77, I think it was. I made a record. Oh, I guess I made it in 77, the summer of 77. I made a solo record for a little label in Colorado. And it was supposed to be a fiddle record. I, and I played, I had some of the guys from the Ophelia band play on one side of it. And the other side was these guys that I played some bluegrass with. And those, that was Pete Wernick and Charles Sautel. Those were two of the guys that played. And um, that, those two guys ended up being my partners in Hot Rise. So when the record came out, when it was about to come out, Pete Wernick had made a record too that same summer, and I had participated in that. So they were both coming out in the fall or winter or something, and 
feet called up. I'd moved to Minnesota briefly, where my uh, where I chased my girlfriend, and she caught me. We got married soon after. Anyway, Pete Warner called and said, "I want to start this band, and I wonder if you want to be the singer in it." And I said, "That'd be good." And uh, my wife was she. We had met in Colorado, and she was ready to move back. It was wintertime. It was time to get to where it was warmer. <laughs> and she said, we could move back there, and that'd be good. So I, we packed up and moved in January and started Hot Rise Up. You know, we bought a Cadillac. We bought some suits. Uh, the four of us, uh, Nick Forster was our bass player. Well, we had a different guy for a while. Mike Scapp played the guitar, and Charles played the bass, but then he quit after a couple months. It wasn't really working, and Nick was a. We we just hired Nick to play this one week of gigs that we had, and then we kept we had we kept getting more gigs. So he said he'd do them. So we just kept going, it, and it was the idea was we were going to get together and play some gigs and promote this these records for this for the year maybe, but it just kept you know working. And uh, Pete had uh, connections through his. Uh, successful banjo book, Bluegrass Banjo. He'd sold 250,000 copies of that thing. So he had a sort of reputation nationwide that we could call on. And we played some festivals around after a year. But the Telluride Festival was starting, and uh, so we played there. And, you know, NPR was uh, kind of hooking up good. There were a lot of little blue pockets of bluegrass shows that weren't on country stations. And uh, so we started getting there. We, we, we were able to sign up with Flying Fish, which was a natural label, after a couple of years. And, um, and by that time, we had a few forays to the East Coast. And I remember after our record came out, we went to Harrisonburg, Virginia, the first gig on a, on a tour. We went all the way out there and started. And when we, when we started the song, well, we went to the radio station the night before to promo the gig, and there was people waiting for us there. You know, a couple, not you know, two or three, yeah. but they were aware of the record and they knew we were coming by and they wanted to see us in the flesh. And then the next night when we started our show, we started off with the first song on the record and people just went crazy. It was like, wow, <laughs> they, we, we're not doing this in a vacuum. Yeah. <laughs> you know, at, before that time, we were kind of always the, I mean, they were excited to see us. Our reputation, we had some slight reputation from the public radio in a college town. So that's kind of, you know, find those little pockets and you, you know, you feel good. And then, you know, we were kind of like always the weird misfit band for a long time until we had enough of our own fans. They started putting us on a better slot. And they used to, we had the thing where we had an alter ego band that came out, um, Red Knuckles and the Trailblazers. <laughs> and um, so we'd leave this. We used to just play that music in clubs. You know, we'd just say, we're going to switch formats here and make make the joke that we were in a different band and we would be Ben Steele and his bare hands or whoever, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, whoever it was. And we, and then, so one, uh, for, for some reason we ended up with Red Knuckles and the Trailblazers. And then one day for a concert, we actually changed clothes, did a quick change, figured we could do that. And it just took on another life. But, you know, early on, some of these bluegrass festivals didn't want that band. They didn't want the alter ego band because it was electric. They were afraid of, you know, it's like bluegrass was, most of the festivals then were like Woodstock and Watkins Glen was a bad taste for people. People didn't want that in their town. So bluegrass was like no drugs, no motorcycles, you know, uh, no electric instruments. That was supposedly keeping the bikers and stuff, the bad element away. 
So the the idea that we'd play electric instruments was enough to tell them no, you can't do that, because it would they were afraid what would happen. It's like if you if you plug a guitar in, you know the whole place might go nuts. I don't know. It wasn't going to be that way, and they figured that out soon enough. But it was you know we were the misfits. We had we wore suits and stuff, but our ties were wrong. We wore real loud wide ties, and uh, we also had too much hair. You know, east east of the Mississippi, we were always the the radical progressive band. West of the Mississippi, we tended to be the traditional band, and that was the case in Colorado. We sort of represented bluegrass. Pete was the standard bearer of bluegrass in a lot of ways. Ended up being so such a spokesperson of it through his presidency of the IBMA. And uh, but yeah, it just depended on your perception. We were progressive. Everywhere east of the Mississippi, though, we were we were misfits. It was kind of a time, you know, when Newgrass Revival was going strong. But at that time, the same time that we started, 78, um, Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver started. So did uh, Johnson Mountain Boys um, and uh, Nashville Bluegrass Band. So there was a kind of a new version of traditional bluegrass coming around in a certain generation. So there was like the T-shirt, David Grisman and Sam Bush style of progressive bluegrass, and then there was us, who were progressive, but we were trying to trying to make the old sounds come back a little bit. Did you tour in that Cadillac? Yeah, you? we toured in the. We had a '69 coupe or sedan DeVille. We had a four door, and um, it was black with the white leather seats, leather interior. We we'd make a lot of uh, comp tapes. Charles would make these comp tapes. He was a stickler for sound, and he had a good good rig for making the cassettes. And um, he would make these tapes and say, you know, hits, pop hits. And they weren't pop hits. They were like, you know, be Freddie King and Bill Monroe and everything in between. And, um, or, you know, pop popular music it was called. Or, uh, you know, I don't know, he had various ones. And we'd just kind of get in the car and go. And four of us, we at first we had, we could put everything in the trunk, and then we got to where we were carrying a PA. We had a trailer, we pulled, and we painted that to match the Cadillac. And uh, some festivals we'd show up, and you know it was like a, you'd have to stand on the tongue, and the other guys would go in there and dress. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because we didn't have a bus like the real pro bands. The first trip, I remember the first. Yeah, we had to get it. it the drive shaft went out on it. We, that was right after we bought it. We got a new drive shaft. But after that, it, it behaved really well. The, then about three, two or three years later, we got a, we got an old GMC bus, um, fifty-seven, Greyhound coach, you know, and uh, fixed that up to travel. And it busted down so many times. It wasn't funny, but it really got us a lot of places we wouldn't have gone. It enabled us to be able to, you know, go long distances and be able to afford it really because we could stay in the bus and and then we uh you know we'd shower in truck stops and go on were you staying at uh, promoters houses yeah we'd stay at people's houses on the on their you know on their couches or whatever but we'd stay we'd pull up and plug it in sometimes and we could stay on the bus then see because we had that going and um then it was always fun because you had the bus and uh no one none of our folky friends had buses and so we'd we'd be on the day off, you know, and we'd sort of take 
take people. We'd drive around town in the bus with them in it. It's like a rolling party. Because it's such a novelty. You'd never do that now. You'd never move it unless you were going somewhere. You wouldn't buy the gas. But in those days, it was like, yeah, let's let's go and hang out on the bus, and we'll just roll it down the highway for fun. I remember when Garrison Keillor's uh, first nationwide broadcast was. It was on TV. And uh, so we all got together and we rode around in the bus and drank a bunch of beer and watched it on the little bus, bus TV. I don't know why we did that, but we did. <laughs> <laughs> why not? <laughs> it was an occasion. I'd like to thank you all for listening to part one and part two will be up next week. And I'd like to thank Tim for inviting me into his kitchen here in Nashville, Tennessee. You can find out everything you need to know about Tim at timobrien.net. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's records. You can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show or you enjoy my music or you enjoy Amy's music, Please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.